If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Later this week, on the 29th of January, Netflix's new film, The Dig, is released. It tells the story of the famous 1939 excavation of the early medieval ship burial at Sutton Hoo in Suffolk, England. Our content director, David Musgrove, recently put in a call to the Sutton Hoo expert, Martin Carver, who's led excavations at the site from 1983 to 1993. He wanted to get the full story of the extraordinary archaeological site and the real dig that inspired the film. You can listen to an extended version of this interview, including Professor Carver's memories of digging at Sutton Hoo himself and his unorthodox golf ball geophysical prospecting technique at historyextra.com forward slash Sutton hyphen who hyphen extra. So uh, the first thing that I think would be um, good to talk about um, is is basically to get a bit of an introduction. Um, So we're talking about Sutton Hoo. Could you, um, in uh, in the in the best way you can possibly do, uh, attempt to introduce Sutton Who to us? What's what's the story of the place, uh, uh, and what? How should we understand it? Well, the place itself uh, is enchanting. It's it's a piece of rural Suffolk, uh, a, a stretch of of grassy terrace, and it looks over the River Deben, which leads out to the North Sea. So, in some ways, the River Deben acted in the old days, uh, like a kind of 
front door uh, to Suffolk. And so you could come up the River Deben and from there you can then disperse into the, the east, uh, eastern part of Suffolk. It's got um, a few spinnies, sort of small woods, uh, down by the river. And um, it's the river, of course, has changed a lot because uh, it was once much wider than this and much more tidal. And now it's been embanked and so on. So it's different to what it would have been in the 7th century. Um, it, it's become famous because of the discovery of the great ship burial in 1939. That wasn't the first excavation to happen there, but that's the one that's made the place a household household name. So it, it, it's it's really popular. It's insanely popular as, as an archaeological site. But it also has this sort of other aspect. It, you know, it appeals to the sort of Gothic in, in people as well. So it makes guest appearances in all sorts of romantic literature. Um, but on the whole, the, the following is very enthusiastic and people are, are bowled over by how rich and how interesting and in some ways how intelligent people were in the 7th century and the kind of governance that they had and their uh, anxieties about which religion to align with and which part of their, and, and who in their neighbours, whether Christian France or pagan Scandinavia, basically. These were the big... I should emphasise that we're in the 7th century with Sutton Who. We're not in the Viking period, which starts 200 years later. But it's easy to confuse the two, because in many ways the Anglo-Saxons and the Scandinavian Vikings had similar ideas and similar practices. So let's just um, let's just wind it back a second here, just to, sure, yeah, uh, yeah. for our listeners to to be super clear on what what it is. So Sussenhu is a, is a is a cemetery. It's a it's a it's a series of of graves um, of different forms and different sorts, um, which were which were established, as you said, in the in the seventh century. But you describe it as a as a story of free acts. So do you want to just sort of go over that? What's, what's <laughs> yes. how how is Sussenhu a free act story? Well, it, it starts with a with a with a prelude because it was occupied from the Neolithic times, Bronze Age, Iron Age, Roman, sparsely. And when the Anglo-Saxons came, they came up the River Deben and would have seen uh, some earthworks which belonged to prehistoric fields. Uh, but that wasn't the first. Uh, that wasn't their first impact on the landscape. Their first impact really was a family cemetery, um, high status, but a family cemetery, which was uh, placed more or less where the visitor centre is now. In fact, it was excavated in advance of the visitor centre. Um, it was sixth century, and it had uh, warrior graves and rich female graves as well. Um, and that, that family then uh, became the predecessors of the royal line, which was buried in uh, Act Two, in the great mounds that were constructed about three hundred meters uh, to the to the east, and those mounds, eighteen of them that that have been recognised, uh, these mounds contained cremation burials, and that's to say, where the cremations were placed in bronze bowls something they'd already started to do that 
in Act One in the family cemetery. Uh, so that's the sort of connections we can make between the two. Um, it only lasted about 50 years. It's, it's sort of 690 to um, 740. 50 glorious years in which uh, the, the descendant family, if I can call them that, the, 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 almost certainly the Wuffings, uh, tried to construct a pagan kingdom in imitation of Christian kingdoms, but very much keeping their own relationship with Scandinavia, which, of course, was, was still, still pagan then. Uh, so the mounds you see today are all quite small because they've been ploughed out, but there's one big one, which is the one we reconstructed. That's, that's, that's mound two. So it, it looks like a kind of slightly lonely place, um, it's just grass, occasional bit of gorse growing, and um, looking down to the, to the, to the River Deben. Um, and in a course of time, uh, after the royal episode, if I can call it, after the royal burial ground was, was abandoned, which would be roughly around the end of the 7th century, and this is the time in which... Christianity reached East Anglia and was fully embraced some 70 years after Augustine arrived. And at this time, this burial ground, the royal burial ground of the pagan dynasties, became something to be avoided. And what we found in our Act 3 was it was used as a place of execution. And so people were hanged and uh, buried rather um, roughly around Mount Five uh, in, in, within the Royal Cemetery and on its edge as well. We found traces of the gallows. Um, the people were buried uh, in all sorts of strange positions after they clearly after they'd been cut down from the gibbet or the gallows. And then uh, they had no grave goods or anything like that. So these were people who'd survived only as sort of sandy brown forms uh, in the ground. So just a very poignant discovery and, and such a change from the great uh, royal cemetery with its gold and silver and so on. Uh, this has now become a place to park, let's say, dissidents. That's, that's how I think of them anyway, people who didn't want to go along with the new Christian regime. And they transfer their allegiance elsewhere, churches, graveyards, and so forth, Bury St. Edmunds. That these are the places where were the new focal points for the new Christian regime. So, what's the period? When's when's the Act Free period? What's the start and end point of that? These it, deviant burials. Eighth to tenth century uh, is the period of the um, executions that that we found. And they were dated by radiocarbon dating, so that's what—that's how we could uh, put them into the sequence. Okay, but the sort of the big, the big sort of glory period and the period from when the uh, the, the the main boat burials come from is the seventh yeah. and eighth centuries. That's that's it's kind the, of the, the, just, the big high point. Just the seventh, just the seventh, just fifty years at the beginning of the seventh century. It's not very long at all. Uh, so, so it's like it's like one of these great bursts of activity. One imagines that these 
mounds are very demonstrative. The burials are ex- very extravagant, horse burial, ship burial, uh, very richly furnished. They are strong statements about the wish to continue this particular regime, this dynasty. And in some ways, they're a sign of anxiety of what's coming at them from over the channel. In other words, um, a, a more obvious Christian union, a kind of reenactment of the Roman Empire, which they really don't want to be part of. So I think that's why the investment is so big. People are calling to their gods, if you like, for protection by making these investments. So, but there are some there are some hints of of, of some sense of Christianity percolating into the uh, into these graves, aren't they? There's, yes. a, there's a there's a bit of intersection. Oh yes, I, I think it's pretty controversial, or has been more controversial in the past. Um, I, I don't know whether you've see, uh, read um, Angus Wilson's book on Anglo-Saxon attitudes. Um, that's that's a that's a really nice portrait of the Sutton Hoodig, where he contrasts those who wish it were Christian with those who feel it's pagan. In other words, in other words, people take sides about this. But just to give my own view so it can be judged, I, I would say that in Mound 1, we do have objects which have Christian symbols, like the silver bowls, like the great Anastasia's dish. Um, they have Cairo, they have crosses. However, these are imported from the Eastern Mediterranean, they're imported from Byzantium, which is the old name for Istanbul. That, that's um, where they came from. So everything there has got crosses on it because that's a Christ, That's the, the hub of a Christian empire. Uh, so if you want a silver bowl, especially a finger bowl, special high-status feasting bowl, then it's not unlikely it's going to have crosses on it. So I, I don't think that's a definitive statement. I think the definitive statement is a huge investment of digging a giant trench, putting a 27-metre-long ship in it, a sacrifice, and then in the boat, in the chamber, putting uh, a, a huge number of grave goods of, of different kinds. Um, they, they excavated, well, they found 263 objects, of which, you know, kept coming from... Uh, 62 artifacts which the British Museum carefully put together after the dig um, and these represent an extraordinary range of um, extraordinary range of objects it's always a good time to talk about Sutton Hoo but there's a particularly good time now because there's this book and film the dig uh, all about this 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 first uh, first major excavation of the site in 1938 1939 now um so it'd be good to just sort of drill into that story and understand what's happening because it's a really interesting story. It wasn't the first, uh, that excavation, before we go into that, that wasn't the first time that people had taken interest in digging into these, into the barrows there, though, was it? People had been uh, messing around in advance yeah. of that. Yeah, there's there's two main uh, digs that happened beforehand. One is in the 16th century, which is really like a a, a looting operation and the technique there was to was to drill down a big shaft into the centre of the mound and then help yourself to what was ever in them. A lot of the mounds had been treated in this way. And then in the 19th century, a slightly more antiquarian approach. Um, the mounds were became the subject of more curiosity, and they were trenched. 
Uh, and the way they were trenched is that you, uh, if you have the mound in front of you, you you put a, you dig a small pit to see where the top of the subsoil is. It shows yellow as, as sand, and then you drive the trench straight through the mound until you hit the side of the burial chamber, which should show up as a, a sort of black area. That so that was the nineteenth century dig. So nearly everyone. Nearly all of them had a trench like that through them as well. As well. So in uh, 1938, when Mrs. Pretty came along and to live in Sutton Hoo House, um, she was a, a, a person who had a great interest in archaeology. She was uh, she'd visited Egypt. Um, she'd um, been involved in the family dig, if you like, in Vale Royal Abbey, where they used to live, uh, with you know, with her father and so on. So she knew a bit about how archaeology worked. And uh, when she'd bought the estate, when they, she and uh, Frank Pretty had bought the estate, they realised they'd got a monument there and decided they could, or she decided to excavate after he died. Um, she decided to excavate probably because she was intellectually curious uh, although there was this element of uh, a lonely widow hoping to make some sort of contact with with the other world that her husband had got just gone to, she she did have a medium in London. She did have uh, a liking, you know, for this kind of uh, uh, well for for consult for consulting a medium about getting in touch with the other world i think that's the best way of putting it um and so she got this dig going in 1938 um she got a digger from the ipswich museum so its director guy maynard suggested basil brown a uh, local character very uh, very self-taught Ingenious, but not fantastical. Very, a very a, a good brain he had, and uh, e even though he hadn't got the advantages of being educated this way and the other, he had a tremendous flair, very a great intuition for understanding how archaeological sites are formed. Um, he studied them by looking at sites that were open. Sometimes he couldn't get in because they were private property. So he used to bicycle to the edge and then look at the section through his binoculars to see how the layers were forming. So he was a clever digger, or also kind of a wild one, according to his contemporaries, described him like a terrier after a rat. But I think his genius was to recognise what he'd got, and he was seemed to be better than that, almost than anyone else in that team. So he started in 38, dug three mounds. Mrs. Pretty chose them. He found that each one had been dug already, had a hole through it. Um, and he also found that the objects that survived were Anglo-Saxon. Uh, so he was expecting Bronze Age, because that's what most of the mounds are around there. But he he, he found bits of glass and so on. He thought, ah, this is Anglo-Saxon. He, he didn't necessarily think they were Viking, but he knew that the Viking uh, burials were related. So <clears throat> he got himself books, he looked at them, learned more about it. And then in 39, 
um, Mrs. Pretty said, um, okay, I think that was a success. So <laughs> let's go and look at the biggest mound. And uh, he said, uh, that'll be all right for me. That's what he's put in his diary. I said, that'll be all right for me. So he did. She she was, uh, she'd put a long iron um, probe into the top of Mound One and, and hit a stone, not that surprised. Not that surprisingly. That's how it started. And then he used his normal method of digging. Now, his method of digging was really the same as the 19th century. So he would start at the edge, dig a little test pit, see where the subsoil was, and then cut down the sides of a trench. And as he got nearer and nearer the middle of the mound, so the trench got deeper and deeper and deeper. And that is what caused the collapse. He had three collapses in 38 and a big one in 39. Uh, you know, quite dangerous. But the reason that people um, perhaps didn't use shoring and, uh, and that kind of thing as much as they should uh, was that they wanted to see the section clearly. So if you could imagine um, this mound, like a, like a sort of uh, cake, and you cut through it, you can see all the section, you can see all the layers in section. And that gives you the story of how the mound was built. Quite important. It's not how we do it now, uh, but that um, and it wasn't really how they always did it then. But you know, he was using techniques that had been used before in Suffolk, uh, and he expanded them to a certain extent. So when it came to the middle of the the mound and it had collapsed, he then started cutting it back. So he cut it back in in a stepped form so that it didn't fall in on him. And he kept going, he kept digging. But uh, th the point about this method was that after about two or three days, he realized in the case of 1939, one burial, that it was wrong. And that was because he met an iron rivet. And he's, he'd, he'd met one before. In 1938, he'd found an iron rivet and dis and discovered that these were... Uh, held, used to hold ships' planks together. So he, he knew that. And so when he discovered this rivet, he said, stop. He was digging then with his um, Mrs. Pretty's um, uh, for, uh, gardener and, and gamekeeper. John Jacobs was the gardener, and William Spooner was the gamekeeper. So th those, were his, um, those were his assistants. And one of them found this piece of iron, said, I found a piece of iron, and held it up. And uh, he said, okay, let's have a look. So he looked at it and he thought, hmm, this is, this is a ship. This is a ship. So now we're going to do it differently. So we don't need to go straight on now because this sheep, ship is already below the level of the, of the natural sand, the top of the natural sand. So he just, he got his pastry brush, which he got from Mrs. Pretty, and just dusted down the top of each rivet. Um, so it made a little uh, red stain where the iron had rusted and gradually worked his way down inside, inside the ship. So there wasn't any wood there, just a little black here and there, but mostly it's the, the, the pattern of the rivets guided him down and down and down until he got to the chamber. And then he recognized that he'd got to the chamber and so he stopped digging and he went straight across the top of it like a big black rectangle. 
few little bits of metal sticking out. But he, and he poked you with his finger a bit, but he didn't disturb it. He just went straight through to the other side. Now, at this stage, uh, uh, Derek, um, Charles Phillips arrives. So Charles Phillips was uh, a fellow Selwyn College in Cambridge, and uh, he uh, had heard in the centre of all archaeological gossip, which is the coffee room of the Department of Archaeology at Cambridge, he, said, he heard about this boat being, there's a Viking ship, wasn't, but they said, it's a Viking ship being found in Suffolk. They're digging it. So he went down uh, on prehistoric society business to, to Sutton Hoo. He met Mrs. Pretty, and uh, he was taken to see the dig, and he, he describes his his amazement, even horror, when, when he saw this fantastically huge heap of earth and then the giant trench beside it, and then the rows and rows of rivets. And he said, oh, no, I think my godfather's was the expression he used. <laughs> uh, so you can see he, he thought, mm. anyway, the, he then called the British Museum and there was various sort of discussions about who should come and so on. But uh, the British Museum and the Ministry of Public and Building and Works. These these are the authorities of archaeology, on you know of the day. They had problems. Their their problem was the imminent arrival of World War Two. So the Ministry of Public Buildings and Works is is in charge of a lot of other things besides archaeology, and uh, so it was busy reinforcing the dockyards. And the British Museum was busy moving its collections into the London Underground, where they were going to spend the war. It wasn't the ideal moment to start a big dig. On the other hand, how could they not finish it? If they'd put the earth in, by the end of the war, there wouldn't have been anything left in there because everybody would have had a good old dibble. So they had to go on with it. They gathered a team, uh, and um, as Charles Phillips says, he, he doubts whether we could have had a better team than the one we were able to, uh, to gather. These were mainly people who had other jobs, but they were waiting call-up. Uh, so they were kind of available during that hot summer of 1939. Uh, Stuart Piggott was the the best digger and, and probably the, the best archaeological brain among them. Uh, W.F. Grimes uh, became a um, professor later. Peggy Guido married Stuart Piggott. Um, O.G.S. Crawford came along. Graham Clark. Uh, was there for important days. So it's like a boatload of professors to be. <laughs> they weren't professors then, but they're all going to be professors. Um, and they had lots of brains, but I think when it came to excavating and recording, Stuart Piggott is the standout star. Uh, he was not only a very good archaeological recorder, uh, but he's also an artist and a poet. He was an extraordinary person, I think. And he, he had uh, um, a very uh, good way of, of recording in, in, in drawings and photographs and write written drawings. It, 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 I doubt whether anybody could have done as good a job as him now if faced with those circumstances. They had no money. They had some scaffold poles provided by the MPBW, which Philip said very little use could be found. <laughs> for these so so really you know they had um well everyone smoked a pipe so they had they had the ubiquitous container of the pipe smoking era is the tobacco tin so they had loads of those uh 
and to pack fines, they packed them in moss. Uh, so they were pretty uh, resourceful, you know. They had a shepherd's hut on wheels. Extraordinary, really. Very talented people with an impossible job and the war coming. The, the, you, the, the picture you've painted there is, is very interesting. It's because you've kind of moved from, it seems like you've kind of jumped straight from the antiquarian era where you've got a, a landowner paying somebody to to investigate their sites yeah. in, in the form of Basil Brown, straight through to kind of the start of professional scientific archaeology and, and this team of, of really, you know, well-educated people. Something, did, 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 the, did the methodology change sort of immediately that Charles Phillips turns up um, and and did Basil um, did, did Basil Brown do a good job with 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 with, uh, with his early work? Well, unquestionably, he did a good job. He he is the one who's given us the shape of the Man One ship. I don't think it was immediately recognised that he did a good job. Uh, between the layer of of uh, Basil Brown, who you might call um, a uh, you know, an archaeologist of, of genius powered by native wit and uh, the establishment figures from the university, there's another layer, and that's the, the sort of um, museum curators in Ipswich and so on. And these uh, people were more officious, I think. They, they criticised Basil Brown. Guy Maynard did, Reed Moy did. Uh, they criticised Basil. He records what he put in his diary, and he's extraordinarily stoical about this criticism, more or less saying, they'll say that, but I'm right. <laughs> that's, what, that's what he's... And he was, too, absolutely. Uh, so he, I think his, he wasn't immediately recognised, and Phillips was given the job by the British Museum and... The, the MPBWs are sort of officially, if you like, given the job of finishing this excavation. And uh, like everybody who's given a job, he might have um, uh, abrogated to himself a, a certain amount of power. I am in charge. I'm in charge, but I've got my own peers working with me. What do I do with Basil? And in, in a way, uh, the, the, you know, I used the phrase Basil was relegated to steerage class <laughs> by, by the new team, but I think that's a little bit unkind. I think they understood him uh, and what he'd done very well, uh, but they wanted to impose a new kind of pr more precise recording on the burial chamber. This is perfectly understandable, and uh, I'm sure that conversations took place which are not recorded along the lines of, have you dug a burial chamber before? Uh, um, to Basil, and he probably said, well, I, I've done one or two smaller ones, but this is bigger than anything I've attempted. And if they were honest, they would have said, well, you know, me too. This is much bigger than anything any of us have under, undertaken. Um, and he remained on the excavation. He remained on the excavation. So history and photography doesn't really show what he did, but the chances are that he was putting the finishing touches to uh, the 27 metre long ship, which is after all uh, the main area that was open. And he took a lot of care of that site. You know, he, he was also its caretaker. So 
I don't know. I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall, you know, to hear what the conversations were, because if you step back from this whole event, what you're looking at at the beginning of the of the Second World War is the beginning of the losing of the power of the upper class. And so there was some kind of class, uh, I don't say antagonism, I think there was some, it was, it was a class event. And um, I think that on the whole, people were very well mannered and, and were very courteous to each other. We don't have any evidence that they weren't including the ga- the gardener and the gamekeeper and all these people of course were employed at the big house so uh, they did they didn't have any interest in in making trouble but you can bet your boots that they listened very carefully to basil particularly stuart is my guess because he was the man who knew the knew the soil and what so, archaeological so, soil yeah sorry. yeah, yeah. So- so that theme of sort of a, a, of class conflict is is quite uh, does come through in in the book and the, and the and the film of the, of the of the dig. It seems like quite a big theme that the author and uh, and filmmakers have yes. chosen to bring out. And, and you think that's that's a I think a fair I think conflict is is too harsh. I think there there were disadvantages in being Basil Brown, uh, in that he lacked the education he deserved and the experience he deserved and the income he deserved for what he was doing. Um, and there were disadvantages in the professorial class. They weren't professors yet, but you know what I mean, <clears throat> too, because I don't think they had the understanding of how um, the, the different layers of soil form uh, in a large burial or in any archaeological sites. I mean, they, they only know about the ones that they were digging. And when they dug them, they'd had the same, used the same old intuition. There's no real textbook which tells you everything you could possibly encounter under the ground and uh, so my guess is that uh, you know in my mind Stuart Piggott is the was the most sort of earthbound of of all the uh, of the dons and um, recognized not only Basil Brown's uh, native wit so to speak but also his intelligence I'm I'm convinced of that i've met stuart but i never got a chance to have a chat with him about about basil brown it was at, at a much later conference and uh, i was much younger he was much older so so i didn't get that but people are alive now who who knew him very well you know and um yeah admired him definitely so i i think so, that so that, not- that relationship that relationship for me is special it, it was almost like people meeting outside the class system Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This is a warrior grave. It's got swords, spears, angons, shield, so on. So it's likely to have been the memorial of a man, uh, even though we don't have any anything left of the man. There are other indications which are uh, uh, slightly worrying in a way that the, the shoes were size seven. That's quite small for a man, but uh, who knows? He might have been short and stocky. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. That's a nice phrase, earthbound. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, a nice one. I, I, I'm wondering, um, you, you, you mentioned uh, that the, the, the excavation happens just uh, uh, on the, in the dawn of, of the Second World War, yeah. with all this trouble looming. How, um, obviously nobody knew when exactly anything was going to happen, but there was a sense that, uh, that trouble was, was brewing and brewing yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Um, so I guess they knew there was an urgency. How, how did that urgency impact on the way they, they dug the site? Would they, would they have done it a lot differently had conditions and circumstances been different? I don't know if they would. I, I think that, that's, that's, uh, that's too difficult to say. I expect they would, yes, but I mean, I, I think they would have taken a very long time over it, and and so would we now. You know, we would erect a shelter now over over the over the you know because the weather is what was they were worrying about more than the war. I mean, if the war is going to come, it's going to come, but but the weather can damage the site while you're digging it, and so I think they were more worried about that, and that meant hurrying. And they did hurry. They did dig it very quickly. They dug it in 17 days. Um, I suspect they were worried about being called up um, because then you'd have to go. So they wanted to get it done, you know, while they were there. So that's what I'm expecting they were worrying about. I think it's easy to worry. I think easy to see now we know that the war did come. I think what they thought was that the war could come, and that's different. You know, it could be another year. It's all been brewing, after all, you know, since the middle of the 1930s. So it, it isn't as though it was there was a, a, a fixed day for it. Um, when war was declared um, in September, the, it, the, the dig had finished, uh, but the boat hadn't been recorded. So they went on recording the boat while they could. And Commander Hutchinson was able to do that from the Greenwich Museum, from the National Maritime Museum. So he, he was able to continue with that, that work. 
Um, other things spoke of normality. They held an inquest. Um, who owns this million pound grave? And they held it in the village hall in Sutton. And um, the magistrate found that the owner was um, Mrs. Pretty. The, the law that uh, the magistrate was working on was quite medieval, treasure trove law, which is basically if, if somebody's buried something with the intention of going back and recovering it, then it is government property because they were trying to evade tax. That's the thinking. <laughs> <laughs> a layman's version of the thinking. Uh, but if, on the other hand, it's buried with no intention of retrieving it, then it belongs to the landowner. So I, I'm not in a position to comment on, on the rationality of this law, but uh, because it was, uh, they could demonstrate or they gave evidence, they gave converging evidence that this was a burial, even though they didn't have a body. They gave the converging evidence that it was a body, that it was a burial. Uh, therefore, it was the property of Mrs. Pretty. And Mrs. Pretty is thought to have consulted her medium, according to Charles Phillips. And then the next day, she said, um, "I give this to the nation." And they said, "Well, uh, the nation makes you a dame of the British Empire." And she said, "No, thank you. I don't need that. This is no achievement of mine." So that, that was quite interesting. And uh, anyway, then because it was given to the nation, it all ended up in the British Museum, St spent the war there, was spent the war in the London Underground, and then came back after the war and a long program, long program of uh, research uh, took place under Rupert Bruce Mitford, brilliantly restoring objects from very many fragments to the objects we see on display today. So, yeah, so, so tell us about the objects and, uh, and the finds there. Well, if you, have to, if you were there the day of burial, you would be looking over um, uh, from the side of a trench onto this long clinker-built ship. And in the middle would be um, a cabin. It's like a, like a kind of um, a very strongly built small shed with um, heavy planking. And uh, inside the shed, you would be able to see um, uh, a large tree trunk coffin. The evidence for this only came up really in, in the last 10 years or so, but I think it's pretty good. And so um, take the lid off that. What, what you'd see actually is a person lying in the coffin. No trace of that person remained, but there was a person in there. And then at his feet, there were heaps of clothes um, that included such things as two pairs of shoes, size seven, um, an, otter fur, an otter fur cap, um, a really uh, interesting set of leather garments which, which, had, which had buckles, not quite sure, not quite sure what they were like. I don't think there was enough left of them to see what they were like, but the, the, the leather garments were, were there. And um, in this uh, coffin, there were also what you might call sort of toilet sets. Uh, um, uh, the silver bowl, ladle, cup, little Burwood bottles, uh, four knives, and uh, three combs. So th those things are, uh, th those things seem to belong to a, to a person. They're their personal things. 
Um, and then uh, you, you imagine that lid being being closed, and then on the lid were the more public uh, accoutrements, pub- public things that people wore in public. Um, helmet, uh, a kind of uh, the baldric, a kind of sort of Sam Brown connected with gold connectors, a gold buckle, huge solid gold buckle, and the gold buckle could open like that. And uh, in the in the gold buckle was obviously some kind of lucky charm or or, or a relic of some sort. You, you just slide two little things at the back of it. When I was first uh, started, I went to the British Museum to see this stuff and was shown it by Leslie Webster, the keeper. And she handed me this buckle, and almost as soon as it hit my hands, it sprung open like that. I thought, oh, no, (laughs) I've trashed the gold buckle, finally. But actually, no, it all fits back nicely together again. So a beautiful uh, uh, military uniform, if you like, with gold gold parts to it. And then um, there's a little gaming, uh, set of gaming pieces as well. Um, there's a uh, little little bell, probably comes off a hawk, and then uh, feasting. So maplewood bottles, drinking horns, giant drinking horns made of aurochs horn, and then a big silver dish from Byzantium. Uh, on the so this coffin lid bit is like um, status uniform plus feasting, warrior king plus. Giver of feasts, giver of gifts, giver of feasts. And then at the uh, West End, uh, th- there was the regalia. There's an iron standard leaning against the wall of the chamber. There's a scepter. There's a shield. There's a hanging bowl, which in it, well, in the hanging bowl was a, a lyre, um, a, a sort of four-string um, musical instrument, in a, a lever, in a beaver skin bag to to protect it. And so here is the, the master of the rebels and also the leader of the armies. And at the other end, the east end, uh, is a sort of cooking end, three big cauldrons with chains. So this is like a furnished mini hall. Uh, the, the man lies in state. He has his personal things with him. On the lid are um, his uh, uniform and his invitations to the feast one end there's cooking the other end there is parade gear regalia absolutely you know a tremendous sight and this was all put together of course after the dig of 1939 uh, they came up with 230 263 pieces and the british museum found them to be 62 separate items amazing and uh, sorry if I missed this. Where, the helmet. Where's the? Where's the? The helmet where's the was helmet on. Is? Helmet was on the lid. So the helmet was on on the lid of the coffin. So the lid, if if you can uh, think of the lid of the coffin as a sort of quite a big, like a table almost. At one end, it's got the silver dish, and then the drinking horns, and then in the middle, it's got the baldric with the gold buckle. There's also a sword with a gold pommel. Um, and then <clears throat> beyond that, the, the playing pieces, and then right at the end, where the head of the person probably was, but above it, was the helmet. And so you you would be able to look at this. My, in my imagination, it's not so easy to prove. I think this spectacle would have been available for several days, perhaps longer, 
for people to walk around the edge and, and look in. And, and they would be people who obviously knew the, the dead man. Um, one imagines that this whole funeral was created by his, by his wife, his unnamed wife, who seems to be quite a character. And um, the people who were looking on would know something about each of these objects. Ah, that's the sword witch. Um, and that's the helmet that he first wore when, you know. So each of those objects is like, has its own biography. It's, it's making its own kind of news report, if you like, to the people who, who are looking on and they're telling their children what's there. So we're not dealing with a literate society. We're dealing with one which tells each other things and then the next generation remembers what the previous generation said and so on. So it's handed down. And of course, Christianity was a big uh, threshold over which some of this, a lot of this, never crossed, which is why archaeologists love to dig it up. So that's a, that's a, that's a fascinating picture, isn't it, of people sort of processing round and looking down and, yeah, um, and seeing all these goods. Cu a couple of things I just wanted to pick yes, up. Sure. So, so the, the body, the body's never been found there is that that's because it it, uh, it didn't survive because of the soil conditions is that right yes Su sutton who's um uh, the natural soil at sutton who is a, is an acid or subsoil is an acid sand it's really acidic um we tested it out by by burying some uh, pork chops and bread in it and by the time we dug those things up uh, two years later they were black uh, they could still be distinguished from from the sand, and in fact, even in the dig, even in the big thirty nine dig, they could tell where wood had been, because it left a little sort of straight edge in the, in the yellow sand. But that is very acidic. And as far as the body is concerned, um, if it's acidic as as acidic as that, it attacks uh, it attacks the bones. It, it attacks the bones. It takes the as evidence for the bones away. So the body would have become like our, the ones we found in our Act 3, where there were victims of the gallows. And those bodies had turned into a kind of brown, body-shaped brown sand. So imagine that that was what happened to the to the king in Mount 1. His body would turn into brown sand. He may have had some clothing on, but that would have gone as well. But then his lying on a wooden floor, and then he's surrounded by this shed, and the shed has got a roof, and above the roof of the shed is, is many thousand tons of earth which were placed in the ship, followed by the mound. So it would rot and then compress. So I think the chances of finding uh, a silhouette, for example, of a body in that circumstance would be very, very very difficult. Uh, Stuart Piggott, who's in in some ways the heroes of hero of this excavation, very experienced excavator, excavated lots of Neolithic sites. Um, he he said it it is exactly what you you would expect. It does not mean there was no body there. He said this at the inquest, and it was quite an influential point, I think. And just in terms of of the person buried here, um, yep. you've said uh, you, you've you've called it uh, called him a man a couple of times. Is yes. it absolutely absolutely <laughs> no doubt that that uh, it is a man? Um, is there is there any any scintilla of uh, a doubt about that? Um, well, th there's virtually nothing in archaeology that can't be doubted by someone. 
<laughs> that's, how, that's how it works. Uh, but in this case, the evidence is quite convergent. It's quite good. It, it converges. That's what I always think is the best thing, is if it's looking in the same direction. That's a pretty good indication. Um, in most of the warrior graves uh, in Anglo-Saxon England, we have skeletons. And in general, like 99%, they're all male. Uh, this is a warrior grave. It's got swords, spears, angons, shield, so on. So it's likely to have been the memorial of a man, uh, even though we don't have any anything left of the man. There are other indications which are uh, uh, slightly worrying in a way that the, the shoes were size seven. That's quite small for a man, but uh, who knows? He might have been short and stocky. And so I, th I think it's a man. And on the whole, what we do have from that period is some intimation of the people who ruled the, uh, the coming kingdom of East Anglia. So we have certain names. Uh, we have the Wuffinger group with, with, uh, with Wuffing, um, Wuffinger as, it, as its founder, as the family founder, Wuffer. And then there is a descent from that. There is a family tree uh, in, in which um, it's possible to infer um, dates. They all belong to the late 6th into the 7th century. Um, Redwald um, is thought to be, uh, sort of died uh, around about uh, 620, something like that. And uh, so even though the dates may not be super precise, um, even though they're precisely given, you know, 624, for example, in the case of Redwald, it, it's all convergent. It's pointing in the same direction. It's pointing in the direction that by the end of the 6th century, beginning of the 7th, uh, people, a family existed which claimed themselves as the leaders of an incipient kingdom of East Anglia. And so th there isn't much evidence to contradict that, even though uh, people have speculated a lot about who might have been in the mounds and so on. So they're not labelled, there's, there's no written evidence, so it is hard to be 100% sure. But that's the convergent evidence, which uh, which I personally think is is pretty good at the moment. So you would you would go for King Redwald as as being the the, the figure most likely to. Have been I, I would yes I would I, I think since the uh, great and wonderful H M Chadwick um, uh, chugged over from Wales to Sutton Hoo in 1939 uh, and saw the burial uh, and said it's Redwald I've no doubt about it I and mean, he wasn't speaking from a study of the finds he just is somebody who had studied the period. Uh, for 40 years uh, in Cambridge, and there wasn't anyone cleverer around. So I suspect he probably was um, speaking from some intuition, but also from all the convergent evidence that he carried in his head. Yes, so I do believe pretty strongly that that's what happened. This is, the, this is a, a kingdom in, the, in formation from the late 6th century through to about the middle of the 7th century, uh, it may not all be the same family. They may be. They may not all be super close, but they are probably well known to each other. One is succeeding the other. Uh, we are told uh, in the documents uh, who was king after whom. 
Um, and it ends with the conversion to Christianity of the East Anglian kings. We wouldn't expect to, them to be buried after that at Sutton Hoo, if this is the Royal Burial Ground, and, and we can't find anybody there either. So the last person there is a woman, and she's buried about 650. And uh, she's buried on a couch and has silver accoutrements, the only woman uh, that we found. Um, she seems to me to be a very good candidate for the unnamed wife of, wife of Redworld, who Bede didn't like very much. Bede thought he, he was being mis Redwell was being misled by his wife. But actually, his wife was more politically astute, I think, than Redwell was. She was a really interesting person. And for my money, she, she was the designer of this burial with all its references to, to France, uh, to Rome, to the Middle East even, to Scandinavia, to the northwest of England. It was a real statement, real, a real poetic statement, I think. Okay, so we need to we need to look to the venerable bead to find out about this this unnamed woman, uh, and and she's she's talked about there. Yes, she's talked about there. I mean, basically, what happens is that she um, uh, she knows that the people of Kent have gone to across to Christianity, and that that has in some ways uh, put them in the power of the French, stop me if any of this seems familiar, but um, <laughs> they, they, uh, the king married, in, uh, uh, had a French princess, and uh, then uh, they were beginning to create a Christian kingdom down there. So Redwell went down to see what, it was, what was going on and came back uh, to East Anglia and said, well, I think it's great, this Christianity, it's going to make us rich. And <laughs> what, I don't know what she said, like something, like, well, we are rich already, probably, because they were very rich, but they could see that trade would be opening up in the, in, the, in the main continent, main part of the continent, if it wasn't already. Uh, and uh, she, she advised him to go steady, you know, not, not to actually sign up. And so he compromised by putting, uh, he had uh, a, a temple at Rendlesham, just, just um, upstream from Sutton Hoo, and he put uh, some, it had some idols of various gods of the Anglo-Saxons there, and he added one for, for Christ and said, oh, there you go then, so we're now we're covered. And that this, some people would say, good, real politique, that's what we like to see. Others would say, well, all you've done is upset two lots of people <laughs> instead of just one. But she was also very crafty when um, Edwin was on the, on the, uh, on the run, he took shelter with, with Redwald, and Redwald was paid by his pursuer, Ethelfrith, a large amount of money to kill him. And Redwald couldn't resist apparently saying anything. The first thing that came into his head, told his wife that, look, this is pretty good, isn't it? And she said, it's a terrible, terrible thing to do. Once you start betraying your own people, then you have no future. So I think she was pretty astute, and she and she was level-headed as well. I mean, I don't think she was against Christianity. I think she was a bit more wait and see. Let's see what they do. Let's see whether they bring oppression or whether they bring opportunity. It's all you can do. And I think that's makes her a pretty sharp person, really. Can you give us a sense about where we are now with Sutton Hoo? How, how, yeah. how do we understand it, and, and what, what's the interesting research and approaches that are, that are going on? Now? Yeah, certainly. Well, we, we've... Um, 
uh, written some books, of course, and uh, we've tried to work out what, uh, tried to meet the task we were given, basically, which is to find out what the Mind One ship was doing there. And uh, it, it seems now that we've got these three cemeteries, one after the other, um, the, the first one um, being a sixth century family cemetery, then the Royal Burial Ground, and finally the Execution Ground, that this was a, a story of the early days of the Kingdom of East Anglia, um, um, members of the upper class uh, becoming um, kings, and then especially especially related to the pagan world, Scandinavian world, and of course the, uh, the Franks had been pagans in the early days. North Europe had plenty of pagans left in it. There was a strong feeling that this is was a kind of independence that they wanted to keep. And in many cases, you know, they their ancestors had been uh, enemies of the Roman Empire, so they weren't keen to get Rome back again. But the Christianity of the time was very Rome-based and uh, was not unlike... Uh, it, 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 its ambitions were not unlike the imperial ambitions of the Roman Empire. So you can see there would be a political building during this during this time. Um, I think the study of the burials and how they were done, um, the kind of ritual aspects of the day of burial, uh, the extraordinary range of objects, what they meant, uh, why they were in the tomb. Clearly, it's not everything that was in the tomb. They were carefully chosen. Uh, the influence of uh, Redwell's queen, all these things, for me, they, they converged in, into quite a good bit of history, uh, which made us see what the early days of England were, were, were like, at least from the point of view of the elite or those who confronted the elite or challenged the elite. Uh, there's lots more to find out. I mean, the, the broader scale now is being employed, uh, sorry, explored in, in Suffolk. Probably the most notable of the new work is that at Rendlesham, uh, where Chris Scull has been opening up an extraordinary site, very wealthy, uh, active over a long time, uh, probably had a pagan cemetery, certainly had a church in the let in latter stages. Um, the the Suffolk, uh, the whole of Suffolk, is a, a place of enormous interest in 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 that period. Um, right and up until, let's say, late 7th, early 8th century. Then, then things did, did change quite radically as the kingdom became much more resolutely and permanently Christian. And as far as Sutton Hoo research is concerned, uh, we have a wonderful visitor centre. There's a museum in it. We invite people to lend us objects so, and, and to make an exhibition around them so that we're always learning about the mound period of Europe, uh, all over the north and the uh, the west of Europe, these you find these mounds. The circumstances are slightly different, just like they are with churches. But the meaning is that they are, uh, I won't say religious, but they are they are sentimental centres which give a strong feeling of belonging to the people who live around them while they still know what's in them. 
And of course, that's something we now know again. We we haven't. It was lost for many years when, uh, in the medieval period, for example, the mounds were made into rabbit warrens. They were farmed as rabbit warrens. Uh, but now people know again what these mounds are, and I think therefore see them as more precious and maybe see them as part of the identity of the land again. I hope so, because I, I think that's really what they're saying. So one one more thing. when um, if, uh, if if our listeners are going to Sutton Hoo and they're going for, and you know, lockdown notwithstanding and when, when people are allowed yes. to go out again... Um, what would you do? How how would you best experience the site? You know, you're an expert. You've worked there. Yeah. Give give us some advice for a, for well, a casual visitor. I think it's beautifully organised now by the National Trust. Uh, so you you start the day by parking in the car park, and then you can go to the exhibition hall, and that gives you a film about what happened on the dig and uh, what people have discovered since. And um, the exhibition shows. Um, uh, a replication of the chamber, which changes from time to time. I think the latest one is is is, is a little bit more ethereal than the one before. Um, and then it gives uh, little biographies of the of the main players, Radworld and his queen, and so on. So it's a nice exhibition. Um, and then the, there's a tea room, as there is in every national trust site. Then you can go on a guided tour of the. Oh, I'm, they've just opened a new part of it, actually. I must mention that. In Mrs. Tranmer's old house, there's now an exhibition of the period of the dig, um, that is to say 1939, uh, with with the tools that were used and all those sort of things. So if you're a fan of the book, The Dig, I think you'll be uh, you'll really enjoy a visit to, to Sutton Hoo and uh, to see the uh, the way that they've uh, made Mrs. Tranmer's house into a um, part of the visitor experience. Then you go out onto the site and you'll see a lot of um, grassy mounds and one big one. And the, the big one is the one we've reconstructed. That's, that's mound two. Uh, hopefully by that time you'll have a, a sort of working knowledge of which mound is which. Um, I think they could go further and put a label on and even uh, hazard a guess about who was buried in which, but that's considered a step too far, I think, by the present uh, National Trust managers. Um, and then uh, when you've done all that, you'll notice that next to the tea room, there is a big open space. Now, that space was the space that we designed in the original design to hold the Mound One ship reconstruction. And that mound run reconstruction is now coming into a possibility. It's, it started in 1984, I think I first started to try and make it happen. Uh, but it's now been made happen by a group of uh, sea lovers from Woodbridge, just across the river. These are people who love sailing and yachting, know a lot about the sea and the river. Um, and they are building the mound one ship, all 27 metres of it, in a hangar on the quayside at Woodbridge. So the keel is laid. Uh, they are using volunteers. They are open to the public. They have um, closed-circuit television where you can, you can watch what's happening. You can watch the planks being, being cloven, and you can watch the um, rivets being made and so on. So it's hugely exciting. And I think in, 
if we are spared from more epidemic, we may be able to get that ship built in next uh, year or two. And then it'll go on trials and hopefully it'll have its own TV personality and uh, sail the North Sea and the Irish Sea, the Baltic Sea, and go into ports and uh, introduce the Anglo-Saxons to people who never met them before. That was Martin Carver, who's Professor Emeritus at the University of York and an expert on Sutton Hoo, leading excavations there from 1983 to 1993. His books on the topic include The Sutton Hoo Story, Encounters with Early England. The film The Dig is being released on Netflix on the 29th of January, and it's based on a fictional account of the excavation and a book also called The Dig, written by John Preston. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when Ian Mortimer will be speaking about inequality in the Regency era.